I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. If you want to go ahead and turn into Matthew chapter 6 also, then you can kind of get a head start on us. We're teaching a series that we've entitled Keys of the Kingdom of God. We're using Matthew 16 and Matthew 6 as um, beginning points, text scriptures for the things that we've been teaching. Uh, I hope this series has is, is, uh, made a difference in your life because some things I'm seeing have sure changed me. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give him some answers. Some say you're Isaiah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets raised from the dead. But then Jesus asked them the question that is the question for everyone. He said, who do you say I am? That is the question for all of mankind. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, Peter answers and he says, well, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And picking up the, the, uh, the story in verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, folks, I would submit something to you, and that is, at this point in time in Matthew 16, the disciples have been commissioned by Jesus to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. They've been sent into cities towns and villages before Jesus gets there to heal the sick and to say unto them the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you now the qualification is the city had to receive them first but if they did if they were open to them and to their message then they were to heal the sick and to say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto them I've always looked at this phrase the kingdom of God is just kind of being general knowledge about God but that begs the question especially with the disciples What in the world do they know about God? It had to mean something specific. When Jesus sent them to preach the gospel of the kingdom, it had to mean something specific because they didn't know anything. Most of the time when Jesus taught and taught them about God, the things of God, they had to come to him later on and say, what did that mean? They couldn't, therefore have been out preaching that Jesus was the Christ. See, we think the preaching of the gospel, anytime the word gospel is used, it's always got to be talking about Jesus and uh, in our day, him going to the cross, in their day, him coming to the earth as the Messiah. But if that were the case, then why is Jesus asking them, who do you say I am? Or why didn't Peter answer, well, you're the Christ, the Messiah, just like you've been telling us. That's not what they preached. Couldn't have been. So when Jesus answers and says, God has revealed this unto you, this is significant. He's saying, you don't know this because I've told you that I'm the Messiah. You don't even know this just because of the miracles and the signs and the wonders, because everybody saw those and not everybody believed. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. Folks, you need to understand something when it comes to the things of God. When it comes to the plan and the purpose of God, the open heart makes all the difference. It's not about God's power. Because people that can see God's power in the Pharisees saw God's power in operation. They didn't believe. It's the open heart that makes the difference. So Jesus says, God has revealed this to you from heaven. Verse 18, and I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that he's talking about is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Thank God the church isn't built on Peter. What a mess that would be. Of course, the way a lot of people live, it seems like the church is built on Peter. They're in some days and out other days. They're wishy-washy like he was, at least sometimes. But he said, upon this rock, the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I say this almost every time, but I love the translation that says the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. See, that gives the picture of the church on the move, not the church on defense. The devil's the one on defense, whether you know it or not. Verse 19, in relation to and connected with the building of the church, he says, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
Those keys must have included authority because he said, And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we've said this before, but it bears repetition, and, and it, some folks weren't with us, I'm sure. They didn't lock doors like we do. We think of keys as being car keys, house keys, and office keys, and stuff like that. They didn't have locks on their doors in those days, so that's not what he means when he's talking about keys. Keys were given as a result or upon completion of a certain uh, field of study being mastered. If uh, the equivalent of what we would call a university, if somebody went to study a certain area of, of uh, well, study something, then when they completed that, they would be given a key and they would wear that key on their belt. That key would signify that they have been masters or they have mastered that area of study. So when Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, he's saying, I'll make you masters of the principles that govern the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are interchangeable terms. And as far as our discussion is concerned, there are a few occasions in the Bible where it speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, where it's not talking about something that belongs to us here, but something that will happen at the end. But for the sake of our discussion, we'll just use the scriptures that in which kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are interchangeable. So the question has to be asked, if he told them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh you. In other words, this healing miracle that you're experiencing is because of the kingdom of God. We know that healing is part of the kingdom of God, has to be included in the kingdom of God and has to be connected thereby. But it has to mean something specific. Well, what does it mean? And if it did mean something specific, but the Bible doesn't give us record of what it means, then why would God leave us out in the cold? Matthew chapter 6. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, I believe Jesus defines the kingdom of God. He gives them, at their request, instruction about how to pray. The disciples come to him and say, John taught his disciples to pray. Teach us to pray. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is that how did John the Baptist know what to teach his disciples about prayer? I think we just take things for granted. I mean, I know what to teach on prayer because I've got Brother Hagin's books to go by. But how did people and how did the early church starting off know how to pray? Folks, one of the greatest lessons you're ever going to learn about prayer is you learn how to pray by praying. You learn how to pray by yielding yourself to the Holy Ghost in prayer and finding finding out where he takes you. But that's way over the head of most Christians. Most Christians want somebody else to do the praying for them anyway. But Jesus taught his disciples to pray and he said, after this manner, pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Notice in verse 10 of Matthew 6, thy kingdom come. Well, that has to mean the kingdom of God had not yet come. Jesus wouldn't tell them to pray for something to come that had already been, that had already arrived, would he? So the kingdom of God had not yet come at the time that he gave them this prayer. The Bible says that it has come for us, so this prayer is not for us. It's got some great principles in it. But it's not a New Testament prayer. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God when he was raised from the dead. At this time when he's here on the earth, he, of course, has not yet been to the cross. So the kingdom of God has not yet come. It's near. It's soon to come. And that was enough for miracles and signs and wonders to take place. But he's told them to pray after talking about God being holy, the father in heaven. He said, pray thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe the kingdom of God is, very simply, the will of God being done on the earth like it is in heaven. When Jesus told him to go and preach the kingdom of God, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, he's telling them to preach that it's God's will for you to be, it's God's will in this earth to be just like it is in heaven. Now, that answers a lot of questions. you got a lot of the church going around saying, well, we don't know 
if God made us sick for the glory of God or to teach us something or whatever, all you have to do is ask yourself, well, what's it going to be like in heaven? If God doesn't want you sick in heaven, he doesn't want you sick here. If God doesn't want you impoverished in heaven, he doesn't want you impoverished here. If God doesn't want you subject to the devil in heaven, he doesn't want you subject to the devil here. Kingdom of God simply means the territory under God's rule. God wants that to be in your life now, not someday in the future. And most of the church is looking to heaven as being a means of escape. Oh, when we all get to heaven, we'll be able to get rid of this old sinful body. But God wants you to conquer this old sinful body here on the earth. Not use heaven as some kind of escape so that now finally we can have it the way God wanted it to be all the time. I believe Jesus is defining the kingdom of God right here. It's where the will of God is done in the earth, just like it is in heaven. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are different kingdoms in this world and that influence this world. We have earthly kingdoms. We don't call our leaders kings. We call them presidents or dictators. Pick pick whichever word you like. So there are earthly kingdoms, but there are spiritual kingdoms too. The kingdom of God is identified by Jesus, as I said, in my opinion. It's where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. That's always been God's plan. When God created man, put him in the Garden of Eden, the system that governed the world before sin entered the scene had to be identified as the kingdom of God. He put man in charge of it and gave him dominion over the work of his hands. But God set man up over in charge of and to govern over the system that he created the world to work by. When man fell, he came to reinstitute the kingdom of God according to what Jesus said. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, That being born again was the entrance into the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't understand that. He's thinking naturally. He says, can a man enter his mother's womb the second time? Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 5, he said, except a man be born of of water, natural birth, and of the spirit, the new birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God came with the new birth. We don't have to pray thy kingdom come anymore. It's already come and it's available to each and every one of us through the new birth. Well, what is, why did Jesus come to reinstitute the kingdom of God then? So that we could be free from the power of the devil while we're still here on the earth. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. The kingdom of the devil is the power is the kingdom of darkness. His power is considered to be and called the power of darkness. He wants us to be free. So Jesus reinstituted a means and a method whereby we could walk free from the power and the influence of the devil here and now. Not wait till we get to heaven to be free. Even at the end of time, the Bible talks about Jesus defeating the devil. John says that he looked up and he saw a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city coming down here on the earth. Well, what's that going to be like? We'd have to identify that as the kingdom of God, wouldn't we? Everything about God's creation, everything about God's relationship and fellowship with man is designed around one thing, and that is God's kingdom here on the earth. It's always been his plan. It's his end game. But there's another kingdom, too. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 10. There's the kingdom of man. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. And here's how it operates. Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. That means he was fasting. 
I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. That's 21 days. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittical, then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color as polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so they fled to hide themselves. Some people run from the power of God and from his presence. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. Some people get upset when people fall under the power of God. Wait till God starts setting them upright. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved... Understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright. Now, that's what the Bible tells us that he was fasting for 21 days for to begin with. He understood the vision. He just didn't know when it was to occur. So he's seeking God for answers. He's been waiting for 21 days. Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that thou didst set, this is verse 12. For from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Now, heaven must be a long way off if it takes 21 days for an angel to get there or get here from there. Now, the Bible says there's something else going on. Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And so it tells us that he told him what the answer was, gave him the answer that he was seeking from God. Now what I want you to see is in verse 13 where it says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. What man is able to withstand an angel? He can't be talking about a human being. He's talking about a force. We would have to understand that this is a spiritual force, not a natural or a human force. But a spiritual force force withheld the answer that Daniel sought that God sent to him from heaven by a messenger angel. It goes on to say that when Michael helped him, And it implies that Michael was the only one or the the only reason that he was able to get through is because of Michael's help, one of the chief princes or chief angels. Then the spiritual force, which is obviously operating contrary to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. So it has to be of the devil. This demonic spiritual force was defeated and the answer got through. Now, folks, if this is a principle, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. If we can find another place in the Bible where it gives us the same kind of information to show us that it's a principle whereby spiritual forces operate contrary to the will of God, then it will answer a lot of questions for us for why things take as long as they do. How long does it take God to answer your question? God can answer you instantly. Daniel is told by the angel that God sent the answer the first day that he started praying. Well, I wonder how long God waited. Did he wait 12 hours to see if Daniel was serious about this fasting? The angel doesn't seem to imply that. 
He said, from the first day. It may have been from the first moment. But it was certainly a quick answer. Either way, we want to look at it. But the devil hindered him. The devil hindered the answer. So what does that mean? That means it's going to take some kind of spiritual fortitude on our part to hold out until we get the things that the Bible says belong to us and the things that we ask God for. Now, the will of God on the earth is for the word that Daniel sees in the prophecy of Jeremiah to come to pass. But in order for that to come to pass, Daniel has to have the answer about when so he can work on behalf of the people of God to get them ready. So Daniel had to hold out for 21 days so that the will and the plan and the purpose of God could be accomplished. That does away with the idea that if God wants something, it's just automatically going to happen. So much of the church says, well, if it's the will of God, then it'll be. Well, the will of God is going to be done in your life only if you exert some spiritual force. Turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's see if this is a principle. Of course, you know it is. I wouldn't open that can of worms without knowing that it was. We'll start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man. So he's talking about a man. He's talking about a ruler in the kingdom of Tyre. Who sets himself up as God. He's so impressed with himself, he thinks he's God. But he's not. He's just a man, a human being. Yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel, and there is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thy understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. This must be why he's so impressed with himself. By great wisdom and by thy traffic, thou hast increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. And it talks about, for the next several verses, talks about his destruction. Now skip down with me to verse 11. Moreover, that means here's something else that happened. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, the, the earthly ruler in verses, uh, what is verse 2, is identified as the prince of Tyrus. Here is somebody that's being talked about or called the king of Tyrus. You know that a king's over a prince, don't you? It implies that the earthly ruler was under the influence or the dominion of someone else. So he says, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now what man would still be alive in Ezekiel's day, which was hundreds of years after, thousands of years after, uh, well, it's about 1,500 years after, I think, what we know of as Adam and Eve. I know it's going to be more than that. It's a long time after. I'm not good at doing math with people staring at me. (laughs) But the fact that he says thou hast been in Eden, he's talking about somebody that was in there in the garden of God in the beginning. Well, the only people we have reference of in the Bible as being in the garden of Eden in the beginning was God, Adam, Eve, and Lucifer or Satan. Who's he talking about? Well, let's keep reading and see if we can figure it out. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. So it is a created being. 
Not a born being, but a created being. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. He can't be talking about a human being. He's got to be talking about Satan. By the multitude, oh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 15. Don't want to skip that one. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created. God made Satan a perfect creature or made Lucifer a perfect creature. But his pride and his sin was originated on his own. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Well, let's just take a minute and read the rest of this. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, and thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. So he's not a king, an earthly king. He will be laid down before kings. Of this earth. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries. By the multitude of thine iniquities. By the iniquity of thy traffic. The word traffic is merchandising. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. And it shall devour thee. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth. In the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror. And never shalt thou be any more. So notice that it calls him the king of Tyrus. Someone that has dominion or influence and or influence. Power over the prince of Tyrus. So it's telling us that just like we saw in Daniel's situation where there was a spiritual force. Or spiritual power. Beyond the earth. That kept the answer coming from heaven. To Daniel withheld it withstood it for 21 days. It tells us that there's a kingdom, a double kingdom principle, whereby the kingdoms of this earth are are governed, ruled, and influenced by a spiritual kingdom that works contrary to the purposes of God. That would mean that there are earthly kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness, what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness, which is Satan's rule. Now, he doesn't have absolute authority. If he did, then there would be no opportunity or possibility for a good king to have ever risen since Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. But there have been some righteous kings. So it's still subject to man's choice and man's will. But too often, earthly kingdoms are governed by people with selfish motives rather than pure motives. Now, folks... With the understanding of this, it's easy to see why things are happening in the earth the way that they're happening. Don't get me wrong, there have always been evil people. But compare the last election that we had four years ago with the one that we're having now. Look at how things have changed. You had a sitting senator last last election in 2012... You had a sitting senator, Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, stand up and say in the floor of the Senate that Mitt Romney hadn't paid taxes for 10 years. Well, he knew he was lying. There have always been liars. He knew he was lying, but it became the media headlines for the next two weeks. There was a debate in 2012 where President Obama was running for re-election that the debate moderator interjected something that was false for the purpose of discounting a comment that the Republican candidate Mitt Romney made about foreign policy and about the Benghazi situation. But look how that's changed. Look how things have accelerated just in four years. The media has always been on the side of the left but at least they made a pretense of objectivity. There's no pretense anymore. The debates now are not between the two candidates, but between 
the one candidate in the news media. And then they delight in talking about the work that they did to discredit the, the Republican candidate. Why have these things changed in four years? Because Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, is advancing. It's not just that these are evil people. They are. But it's not just because they're evil people. They didn't just start being evil. But there's a wind in the sails for Satan's kingdom to advance. Kind of like the Bible said there would be. Where men would get worse and worse. By the end of this election cycle, there'll probably be 1,042 women that have claimed that Donald Trump has groped them. (laughs) And it will probably claim that he's never been anywhere ever in his life that he hasn't sexually assaulted some woman. It doesn't matter if it's true. If it advances the devil's agenda, that's all that counts. And it's not just because people are evil. It's because the devil is on the move. I firmly believe that this election has more to do with you being able to stand before God and answer for whether you did the right thing or the wrong thing than it has to do with who's being elected. I see some Christians that are claiming the moral high ground for not voting for Donald Trump. And instead, they're going to cast their votes for the devil's agenda to be advanced. I don't see how a Christian can do that. How can a Christian vote for what they know is unbiblical and contrary to scriptural principles? How do you do that? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm more excited about the future than I ever have been. Because the Bible says as men get worse and worse, the power of God and the glory of God is seen greater and greater. So in my opinion, it's creating a scenario where the world will start going down. By the way, the Bible says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. That means news media too. It means politics. It means government. It means finance, business and finance. People are going to get what they want. And they're going to find out that's not what they wanted after all. Because Satan's kingdom is advancing. Now turn with me over to, um, well, let's look at Matthew chapter, I think it's chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, yeah. John the Baptist is put in prison by Herod because he speaks out against Herod marrying his brother's sister. And political figures don't like people exposing what they do, and so they put him in prison. Of course, that doesn't happen today. (laughs) But it used to happen. And you can well understand when John sends... uh, His disciples, he said to ask Jesus, are you the one that I told everybody that you were or are we looking for somebody else? People, even when they're used of God in great ways, can get discouraged when they're in the middle of a trial or a test. This seems to indicate what John's situation is. And Jesus answers and says, go tell them what you saw and heard. The lame walk and the blind see and so forth. And then when they leave... Beginning in verse uh, 7, Matthew 11, verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you know, that John, I thought he was steady, but now here he is. He's given up. Somebody that God used in such a great way as him, and now he's doubting. No, he didn't say anything like that. He talked about what God's plan for him was and what he's fulfilled. He said, what went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? See, John the Baptist was too tough for some people. Too hard, too coarse. 
You say, what were you expecting? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? The whole day that wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what went you out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Now everybody understood that that was what was spoken of of Elijah. And so that's why people would ask, or ask Jesus sometimes, are you Elijah? John the Baptist was the one that came in the spirit of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah reincarnated, but he came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for Jesus. Now notice what Jesus says. He says, verily I say unto you, verse 11, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now think about who that means to them when they're hearing this. That means John the Baptist is as great or greater than Moses. Moses wasn't greater. Elijah wasn't greater. Isaiah wasn't greater. None of the prophets were greater than John the Baptist. Now, we don't have record that John the Baptist ever performed a miracle. So God must judge things differently than we do. Verily I say unto you, there is among them born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding, here's the good news for us, notwithstanding he that is the least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. Boy, that new birth is really something. Maybe we ought to esteem it as such. Notice the next verse, verse 12. He says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now. We'll talk about the timing, but I want you to see it. He said, and from the days of John the Baptist until now. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias, Elijah, which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the one I want you to see, the verse I want you to see is verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. When Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost came upon him, the Bible says from that point in time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He began doing works and miracles, signs and wonders. He called his disciples, gave them power and authority over evil spirits and over sickness and disease, and told them to go preach the gospel of the kingdom. That all started with John the Baptist. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, since John the Baptist, since the Holy Ghost came on me and I started doing the work and then commissioned the 12 and then commissioned the 70 to do the same work, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Now, violence is a difficult word. I'm not sure it was the best word they could have used. The word that's translated violence literally means seize, to seize. So this verse could be translated, and for our purposes I'm going to translate it this way for the, to make the point. From the days until, from John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been seized upon. Has been seized upon. In other words, it's saying the healings and the miracles and the authority over the devil that's been exercised was the seizing of the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's what Jesus told the disciples to say. He said, if a city received you, heal the sick and say the kingdom of heaven is nigh unto you. He made the connection between the healings and miracles and spectacular works of God and the kingdom of heaven. So he says, the kingdom of heaven has been seized upon. Since John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has been seized upon. And the Caesars, the violent, the Caesars... The ones doing the seizing have seized it with a seizing force. In other words, he's saying that there is a force whereby the kingdom of heaven is seized upon. It doesn't just come naturally, doesn't come automatically. He's saying that it must be seized upon or taken hold of. 
And that only by a force. We know that force to be a spiritual force. Let's look at another gospel account of this same occurrence, this same instance over in in, uh, Luke chapter 16. This is a, um, pretty much the same thing Jesus said, but it's a different account. Jesus has just told parables before the Pharisees about you can't serve God and mammon. The Pharisees understood that the parable was against the, about them and against them, against the way that they operated. So Jesus, uh, they derided him, the Bible says. In ver- well, we'll just start reading in verse 14. Luke 16, verse 14. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He's talking about greediness and covetousness. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. It's literally saying every man that will take hold of it does so by this seizing force. It's talking about the same thing. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than the one tittle of the law to fail. He connects it with the word. He connects the force that presses in or takes hold of or seizes the kingdom of God where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven as being connected with the word of God. Well, that fits what he told the disciples in Mark chapter 4, where he told them, unto you is given to know the secret or the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And the secret and the mystery of the kingdom of God is the parable of the sower sowing the word. The thing that he explains and describes is the one that reaps the results, the one that bears fruit, are those that speak the word in the face of adversity, in the face of affliction, in the face of persecution, In spite of the cares of this world, in spite of the deceitfulness of riches, in in spite of the cares of the lusts or the desires for other things. He's saying the one that produces fruit is operating under the, uh, by the secret, or he has mastered the principles of the kingdom of God, which is to speak the word no matter what. No matter what you see, no matter what you feel, no matter what comes against you, no matter what, It's to speak the word. So Jesus is saying the same thing in a lot of different ways. He's saying this is the way you press into the kingdom of God. This is the way you seize the kingdom of God. Now in James chapter 3, and I hit on this a couple of weeks ago. But this is something that the Lord is really making real for me. In James chapter 3, why don't you turn there rather than me just quote it refer to it why don't you turn to james chapter 3 james is talking about the condition of the human tongue we'll start in verse 1 he said my brethren be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation a lot of people want to be other people's teachers and leaders and mentors and all that kind of stuff Well, okay, if that's what God's got for you, then you certainly want to step into it. But if it's not, know that you're going to receive the greater judgment. I see a lot of people taking leadership way too lightly, in my opinion. I see a lot of people that don't have a call to do so wanting to tell other people what they ought to do in their lives. There's a greater judgment for that. You come to me and ask me what you ought to do. I'm going to say, I don't know what you ought to do except pray and follow God. Because I don't want to be responsible for you doing what I think instead of what God wants you to do. I'll tell you what the Bible says about certain things, but it's still up to you. I won't take on that responsibility. For in many things we offend all. The word offend means to stumble. He's saying there are things that we could do that cause other people to stumble and there are things that we do that cause ourselves, cause us to stumble. For in many things we offend or stumble before all. 
If any man offend or stumble not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying you can control your body, you can control your life, you can control everything about your existence here on the earth with your tongue. He didn't say here's one way to control things. He said here's the way to control everything, and that is with your tongue. It's almost like one of the principles of the kingdom of God is to control your tongue. Well, Jesus said speaking the word, in other words, controlling your words, your tongue to speak only God's word will make you a master of the principles that govern the kingdom of God. And it's the secret to operating in God's kingdom where the will of God is done on the earth in your life, just like it is in heaven. Well, Pastor Mike, don't you preach anything else? Why should we? This is the key. And don't act like you've got your tongue under control anyway and don't need to hear it. (laughs) We're all working on that. And it takes a while. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths mouths that they may obey us. You know what a bit does in a horse's mouth? It puts pressure on the tongue. You put pressure on your tongue and you can control yourself and your life. And we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and driven of the fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor or the captain listeth. Ships don't turn on a dime, but they will turn when you use the rudder correctly. Your life will change directions, not instantly, not overnight, but eventually if you'll control your tongue. Even so, verse 5, even so the tongue is a little member, and behold, great and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. One translation says, no matter how big a fire is, it all starts with one spark. That's true, isn't it? Every great destructive fire has started with one small spark. And the tongue is a fire, verse 6, and the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity or sin. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. In other words, he's saying very simply this, the devil operates his agenda in your life through your mouth. If he's going to be successful in accomplishing his will or his influence in your life, it's going to be through your mouth. The improper use of your tongue. Notice it says it's set on fire of hell. I believe this is one of the greatest things that happened at the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. He lost control of his tongue. Before that time, before sin entered into the scene, his tongue was hooked up with his spirit. The source of his life was his spirit. The source of his words were his spirit. He had a body. Lived in a body. He had a soul. But they were not the dominating factors. The source of his life was the spirit of God that was breathed into him. So everything that he said was connected to his spirit. It was the means and the method, the way that he was to exercise authority and dominion on the earth. That's why the Bible keeps telling us so many times in Genesis 1 about what God said. Because God created Adam after his like, in his image and after his likeness, an exact copy of himself. Well, if God did things through his words, how did he expect Adam to do things? Through his words. If God exercised dominion to create the world to begin with through his words, how would he expect Adam to exercise dominion on the earth that he created, if not through his words? So Adam's words were hooked up with his spirit. He could have said exactly what Jesus said in John 6, 63, before the fall, the words that I speak unto you, their spirit and life. But at the fall, his tongue got unhooked to his spirit. His tongue became influenced by his mind, his thinking, and his five physical senses. And James says that that tongue that's now governed by the five physical senses is set on fire of the course of hell.
How does Satan dominate the world systems? What makes the difference in whether or not there's going to be a good and righteous king or ruler or an unrighteous king or ruler? What makes the difference? The choice of the individual. And that choice of the individual is going to be exercised through his words. There are very few things in life that you don't do with your or with or through your words. Very few things happen or take place in life that you don't speak first. Well, God's words are a fire too, aren't they? God looked into the darkness and said, like be. And there was an explosion that scientists are still trying to figure out today. God's words are a fire too. I started looking at my words that way. And there, I made the point a couple of weeks ago that there are a lot of ways that, that small explosions, small fires, sparks are beneficial to our lives. One great way is the operation of a gasoline engine. It's powered by small explosions in the cylinders. It creates forward motion. I believe your words do the same thing when you speak God's word in your life. It creates forward motion for you. It's the the equivalent in my thinking. It's the equivalent of walking by faith. Walking by faith is walking by the word, isn't it? Well, what creates that forward motion? The words that we speak. So they're very similar to the explosions, the little mini explosions that take place in the gasoline engine. It propels us forward. But there are other ways that we use explosive devices for our benefit. They're used to a great degree and great, with great success in wartime. Grenades are small explosive devices. Bombs are explosive devices. And they've done a lot of research, or not research, but a lot of development with bombs over the last number of years. They've created smart bombs. Is that what they call them, smart bombs? They can be guided to hit the target even after they're launched. I believe your words can be like that. I believe words spoken, the word of God spoken from your mouth can be a smart bomb against the devil. One of the ones that interested me was during the Iraq war. They realized that the enemy had burrowed many, many feet, hundreds of feet into these mountains. And when the bombs would hit the mountains, it wouldn't do anything but just shake things a little bit, but wouldn't harm them, the people that were inside. So they developed these bunker buster bombs that would hit and burrow deep into the mountain and then explode. I like to think about doing that to the devil in his kingdom. I believe that's what happened in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John told the man that was crippled at the beautiful gate, rise and walk. That was a paralysis bunker buster. And the man was healed. Now turn with me finally. Let's close with this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Beginning in verse 11, it says, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh unto Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now, the kingdom of God in this case is talking about the prophecies. There are three specific prophecies in Isaiah, um, Hosea, and Amos that talk about the kingdom of God being reset up or reestablished here on the earth. We know that that's fulfilled in uh, Revelation the last chapter of Revelation, when uh, the new Jerusalem comes down upon the new heaven and the new earth. But they're looking for the kingdom to be restored. And there were several times in Jesus' ministry where the disciples or somebody would come to him from the outside and say, is this when you're going to reestablish or restore the kingdom to Israel? They're looking for an earthly kingdom. And Jesus had to explain to them, on one occasion at least, in Luke 17, that the kingdom of God doesn't come with outward show or observation, but it's within it's not the earthly kingdom that he came to reestablish or, reset or restore. It was the kingdom of God from within. So they're looking for the natural kingdom to be restored to Israel, 
come out from under the Roman rule and so forth. And Jesus even had one uh, guy and his uh, disciples, one of the twelve, Simon Zelotus, Simon the Zealot. That could easily be be translated Simon the Terrorist because he's trying to work underground, undercover against the Romans to restore the kingdom to Israel. So Jesus has to explain to them that it's not the natural kingdom that he came to set up. He told that to Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would fight. So he told them a parable because they're looking for the natural kingdom to be restored immediately. So he says this. Here's the story he tells. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went out into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass when he was returned and having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. There came the first saying, Lord, thy pound has gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, Lord, thy pound has gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest thou that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest not, or I'm sorry, thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid down, laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest thou not my money unto the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury or interest? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that has ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, but he has ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that which he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not, that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Good news. Notice Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and its coming. The first thing that he identifies is the ones that are left behind are to occupy until he comes. What does occupy mean? It means to take territory. It means to seize territory. In other words, the kingdom of God, that dominion over which God reigns, where his will is done in the earth just like it is in heaven is supposed to expand. Now that can mean personally or it can mean corporately. There should not be any area where the devil still rules and reigns in your life. And if there is, you should take that ground back. Now remember the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. You can only seize control of Satan's kingdom through this spiritual force, what we know of as the force of faith. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, that one of the principles, foundational principles of the kingdom of God is that whatever you believe in your heart and say with your mouth, you'll have. Your words control your life. Your words control Satan's dominion in your life. Your words control the degree to which you are completely free and experience the will of God here and now. Now, it doesn't always work overnight. doesn't always work instantly. Rarely does it ever operate instantly. But it will operate. And the devil will, will try to hinder you. Just like he tried to hinder, hinder Daniel. And did successfully hinder Daniel for 21 days. From getting his answer. The answer was on the way the whole time. In other words, Daniel did his part. God did his part. But the devil tries to hinder. I see the operation of our words as throwing bombs to take back Satan's kingdom. 
I see Satan's forces trying to hinder me from receiving the things that I've claimed by faith. But I can beat back his forces with my words. It's like throwing bombs at them. So the first thing that it says in this parable that Jesus gives about the kingdom of God is that our job is to occupy till he comes. Now notice the territory in which we're to occupy. It's a hostile place. It's a realm. It's an earth that does not want to be governed by God. Now some people are going to do this effectively with varying degrees of effectiveness. The guy with the one gained ten, another guy with the one gained five. But some people, some Christians, instead of occupying till he comes, are going to hide their heads. So that when the Lord does come, there'll be no results, no fruit gained by their time that was here. I call those people just taking up space. There's a lot of Christians that are taking up space. There's a lot of Christians that are too earthly minded to be any spiritual good. There's a lot of Christians that are too politically minded to be any spiritual good. But our job's still the same, and that is to occupy till he comes. How do we occupy? How do we increase? Well, the foundational principle is to use your tongue rightly so that the will of God is done in your life, just like it is in heaven. Now, folks, I want to ask you, and I'll leave you with one final thought, and that's this. What work of the devil is greater than the word of God? Religiously, we can answer that. Oh, there's nothing the devil can do that's greater than the power of God. And God's power is exercised through his word. Well, then that means there's no area of the devil's territory. There's no area of the devil's influence that you cannot defeat by speaking God's word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk by faith. What a privilege it is to walk by faith. We recognize, Father, that your word in our mouths is a fire. Not one set on course of hell, but one set on the course of, set on course of heaven. One that delivers power to occupy and to take back territory that the devil has taken. We thank you, therefore, Father, that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. We declare that the declaration and the vow of faith saves or heals the sick and that you, Lord, are raising us up. We thank you, Father, that all of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We thank you for abundance and no lack, for that is your will for us in heaven, so is it your will here on the earth. We thank you, Father, that because we're tithers and givers, the windows of heaven are open unto us and men are giving to our bosom. Thank you, Father, that the peace of God belongs to us because Jesus purchased it. We'll be at peace. Because our minds are stayed upon your word, we shall stay at peace no matter what happens in this world around us. We'll not fear the advance of Satan's kingdom for we know that our job is to take back territory that he has stolen. Our job is to share the goodness of your plan and your purpose and the finished work of Jesus to take back territory. Territory that Satan has stolen. Thank you, Father, that we're blessed in everything that we put our hand to. We thank you, Father, that your will is accomplished in our life here and now in every area and in every respect. In Jesus' precious name, we thank you foremost, Lord, that since you did not hold, withhold Jesus from us, the very best and most beloved, how can you withhold any good thing for us? We rejoice, Father, 
because of what Jesus said, that it's your good pleasure to give us the kingdom of God. We'll never turn back on that, Lord. No matter what the circumstances appear to be, no matter what doubts come to our mind, no matter what the devil says, no matter what happens, no matter how long the delay is, we shall continue to exercise this spiritual force of faith, knowing that the answer is ours. In Jesus' precious and holy name, if you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand together. Let's just lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. There's not one area of your life, not one problem that you'll ever face that God didn't make an answer for before you ever found yourself in the problem. We thank you, Lord, for your victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith in your word, your spoken word, spoken from our hearts, brings the answer every time. I thank you, Father, that you've heard us and that you always hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being part of us. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. And you're dismissed.